You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're a little bit behind today, and my sermon is very clearly divided into two parts, dealing with two somewhat separated topics. And so what we might do this morning is just cut it off in the middle. And so if it happens where you think, wow, that was a sudden end, he didn't even have a conclusion to his sermon, now you know why, okay? So that might be the case this morning. Thank you for joining us. If you're a visitor, you're coming at a time when we've been doing a series on the biblical qualifications for eldership. And so this very much is kind of like an in-house lesson where we have been educating ourselves as a church on what to look for when appointing men for leadership. And so it might be a little bit awkward for you. It's kind of like you're listening in on a family meeting about uh, how we ought to be behaving ourselves and how we ought to be appointing men for leadership. And so I hope you understand that in that context. Uh, On the other hand, if you're not a normal churchgoer and you're here visiting, um, this could be a good opportunity for you to hear from the inside what our own views on spiritual leadership are. Because frankly, Christianity's detractors with uh, you know, no incentive to give the church the benefit of the doubt, oftentimes focus upon the abuses of leadership. And there's plenty of those because we still live in a sinful world, and many men make, them make a way into leadership that shouldn't be there. And uh, so you may have an impression of the church and spiritual leadership given to you uh, out there. And uh, maybe this is an opportunity for you to hear uh, just a little piece of what we believe spiritual leadership ought to be. And so with that in mind, I'd like you to pay attention when we read uh, a passage in Titus and we read a passage in 1 Timothy, I would encourage you to listen very closely to those biblical requirements and, and understand that that's our standard, regardless of the abuses that you might see elsewhere. So with all that being said, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll get to that in just a second. There's a wonderful account in the Gospels of a woman named Martha and Mary. And as Martha was toiling away one day in the kitchen, her senses were suddenly overwhelmed by a distinct aroma. And it wasn't the smell of food. It wasn't the smell of the food she was preparing for her special guest that day. It was a sweet smell. It was sweet, yet kind of woody, kind of musky, and it just overtook her senses. It was a fragrance she knew, but didn't smell very often, and it filled the entire house. It became apparent to Martha, as she was there serving in the kitchen, smelling this aroma, that this was a very special moment. In the foothills of the Himalayas, in northern India, there blooms a pink, bell-shaped flower, not too distantly related from the honeysuckle. Although the flowers are pleasant enough, the real treasure of its technical name being Nardostachius jadamansi, the real treasure of that lies beneath the soil. The roots and the rhizomes of this plant are often used to produce an amber-colored oil with a very distinct fragrance, variously described as sweet and woody and earthy and spicy and musky. This precious perfume in the first century and before came to be recognized as a very aroma of luxury. And that's the smell that was overtaking Martha in the kitchen of her home. The scarcity of that plant, the transportation costs from India, the difficulty of extraction of the oil, all of that contributed to the costliness of spikenard. 
even a vial of just a few ounces would be handled with extreme care. Yet, in this situation, when Jesus and the others had finished dinner in Mary and Martha's home, Mary went and she retrieved one of her most precious possessions. It was 12 full ounces of precious spikenard. John is sure to tell us that it was pure and not diluted. Such a quantity of this oil would have been the equivalent worth of a year's wage for a general laborer. How did Mary come to possess it? Was it a family heirloom, uh, a rare gift? We don't really know. But one thing is sure, it wasn't meant to be used all at once. A dab here, a dab there, maybe. And definitely not at a simple dinner among friends. But in Mary's heart, there welled up a spirit of worship towards Jesus Christ. And she knew that there would come no other day as significant as this day. And this was very fitting for an act of extravagance. And so she expended all of her precious perfume and she poured it upon the feet of Jesus. But even that sacrifice wasn't enough to kind of meet the spirit of worship that Mary had towards Jesus. And so what did she do? She actually wiped that precious oil with her hair. And so Mary laid her treasure and her pride and her very person at the feet of Jesus as an act of holistic worship. Like incense wafting upward in the temple, the aroma of her worship was acceptable to the Lord. Very appropriate considering the sacrifice that Jesus would soon make for her. Why are we talking about perfume? Why are we talking about oil? That sweet savor of worship wasn't pleasant to everyone in the room. There was one man in the room who, when he inhaled that thick, scented air, he could only think of money. What was a display of true worship to the others was a disgusting display of waste to him. To Judas, the room reeked of squandered wealth, gratuitous expense, He spoke up with feigned words of altruism. This could have been sold to provide for the poor. Lest one take his objection at face value, thinking that he really cared about the poor. John is quick to add, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas loved money and not Jesus. This didn't keep him from associating with Jesus, didn't keep him from associating with the disciples, because he viewed the power and authority and influence of Christianity as the perfect vehicle to hijack in order to gain personal wealth. Does that sound familiar? In doing so, he became the progenitor of a long line of money-loving hypocrites who have sought to impersonate genuine disciples in order to satisfy their sick worship of money. Today, the world over, there are men and women who claim to represent Jesus while actually being disciples of Judas. To them, the inherent authority and influence of Christianity, again, may get ripe for abuse, and so they seek positions behind pulpits and behind TV screens. And from those places of influence, they victimize their hearers through promises of monetary gain and financial breakthrough. They claim to be pastors and bishops and even apostles, the whole while being money-loving charlatans. To be sure, their listeners are guilty as well. Paul told Timothy that the day would come when people would accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
And so in such situations, you have congregations or groups of people who are cut from the very same covetous cloth as the greedy teachers. Nevertheless, the Bible says that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And so those propagating a prosperity gospel, a money-driven theology, have a greater condemnation awaiting them. As Peter said, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. But Paul wrote some letters to two men, one named Timothy, who was in Ephesus, and one to Titus, who was in Crete. And in those letters, he gave qualifications for elders. And in both of those passages that we're going to see in a moment, he addressed greed. And that's going to be our focus this morning. The same breed of false teachers was active on the island of Crete when Paul wrote his list of qualifications for leadership. He warned Titus that a man was not qualified for eldership unless it was proven that he was not greedy for gain. And so we can say pretty authoritatively this morning, based upon the authority of the Word of God, that if there was a man who's in a position of spiritual leadership, as a pastor uh, purporting to be a spiritual teacher, teaching the Word of God, who is greedy, he has no business being in that position. He is actually unqualified for the role. And so we see this in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes that a potential elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, he says, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Teaching error for money. The elders whom Titus would appoint to oversee churches in Crete would have their work cut out for them because they're surrounded by such false teachers. Not only was the Cretan culture steeped in deceitful and debauched living, according to Titus chapter 1, but operating among the people, again, were false teachers who taught error for money. These are scheming confidence men who gained the trust of people through their facade of religion, the whole while being nothing more than greedy pretenders. And Paul says in our passage that chief among those pretenders were the circumcision party. These were Jews, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who were described as those who devoured widows' houses, preying upon the elderly, uh, getting them to give their money. And Jesus says plainly that they were lovers of money. They were men who scoffed with contempt when Jesus said plainly, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Luke chapter 16. For this reason, in addition to holding firm to the apostolic teaching, faithful elders would have to learn to skillfully wield the word of God against false teachers. This would be an impossibility or an overt act of hypocrisy if those pastors or those elders themselves were greedy of money. And so you and I are in the very same situation, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Have you been exposed to the greedy, money-loving charlatans? I mean, this has been the product, uh, the focus of tabloids and and primetime exposés. These men and women who have the giant mansions and the jets and the uh, luxurious lifestyles. It's true in our day, just as it was true in Titus' day and Timothy's day. 
And since separating the genuine believers from the false believers is not within the interest of the culture, they're simply going to focus upon the abuses. Therefore, we have an even greater impetus to ensure that our reputation in and outside the church is free of any appearance of greed or covetousness. And so what we're going to look at in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look as Paul gives to Timothy some antidotes to greed, some antidotes to greed. And it's going to help all of us because remember, elders are simply called to exemplify the Christian character that's expected of every single believer. And so this is applicable to everyone here. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're our visitor today, we thank you for being here. And I want you to hear what is expected of your Christian friends, okay? Uh, and we should not be afraid of such scrutiny. In fact, we should welcome it as those who are called to shine as lights in the midst of the culture. And so Timothy had to deal with such false teachers in Ephesus, just like Titus did in Crete. And so Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, describes such men as those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. You know, you can be a plumber, you can be a mechanic, you can be an architect, you can be a politician, uh, and all those are ways to make money. Or maybe you could be a pastor and look at it as a career, and maybe I can get rich off of that uh, calling. He then went on to write to Timothy a powerful corrective to that perverse thinking. If he and the elders he would appoint would be faithful under shepherds, then they would have to have a godly attitude towards money and possessions and eternity. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. According to Paul, the antidote to greed is contentment. The antidote to greed is contentment. Whereas greed writhes under one's circumstances, lusting for something more or better or fairer, Contentment receives its circumstances as those which are sovereignly chosen by the Lord. The Lord is the loving Heavenly Father who knows what we have need of before we ask, who delights to provide it all for us. And so knowing this, the contented person rests in his arms, trusting that he has orchestrated their circumstances for their ultimate good and that he will be with them through it all. And that's enough. As the writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And what will fuel that contentment? According to the writer of Hebrews, he says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reality that God is, that he's a loving heavenly father, that he provides our needs, that confidence that we have that he will never leave us should lead us to contentment. Now, contentment... They say, okay, so then whatever state I'm in, I should be fine. I'm making minimum wage, renting a place, not very nice. My car's broken down. I should be content. Well, hold on. Contentment is not the same as some sort of morbid resignation. That is a desire for healing, a desire for a spouse, a desire for a home which accommodates one's family, a desire for the removal of trouble or trials. Those are all legitimate. That's not the same as discontentment. The difference is found in the heart attitude. The contented person can seek the Lord's face for provision, put feet to their prayers through personal effort, while also maintaining a continual posture of submission to the Lord. 
ultimately recognizing that however he chooses to provide is uh, the situation with which we must be content. For instance, Jesus sets an example for us when he's in the garden praying, and he prays to the Father, uh, Lord, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of suffering. But he immediately followed that desire with what? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so on one hand, stating the desired provision, stating the the desired removal of trouble and trials, uh, but also maintaining a spirit of submission to however the Lord seeks to provide. Notice also that Paul's emphasis in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, is upon what? Needs and not wants. And so what leads us to contentment is a proper assessment as to what is a need and what is a want. Paul says to Timothy, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How many of us this morning are content with food and clothing? (laughs) I wonder. A key to experiencing the restfulness of genuine contentment is to have a proper sense of needs versus wants. Food and clothing are needs, while anything we are lusting after for the sake of luxury or status or pride are mere wants. It's easy to lose perspective, forgetting that a low-income individual in the West is affluent by global standards. It's also easy to succumb to a societal pressure to believe that success or status is determined by how much we have. How big is the house? How new is the car? How big is the bank account? But we ought to take heed to Jesus' own words when he said, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Listen, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Some of us here this morning are are stuck on that rat race. We're stuck there in that drive for more and better, feeling like that next thing is going to bring satisfaction. There's some here this morning who have bought into the culture's lie that possessions bring fulfillment. Possessions measure success. We need to heed the Lord's warning and recognize that that's not where the abundance comes from. That's not where meaning of life comes from. A faithful elder is content with his needs being met understanding that there's serious temptations which accompany riches or wealth. He can say with the writer of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's saying, Lord, please save me from the extremes on either side. I don't want to be going without so that in my poverty, I'm then tempted to do something I shouldn't do to provide for my needs. On the other hand, I don't want riches because I know that affluence uh, leads to a functional atheism. I have everything I need, therefore I don't need God. Uh, My bank account provides my needs, and so I don't need to go to the Lord for provision. And so uh, poverty and riches both are not to be desired. Uh, by the believer. Notice also in Paul's words to Timothy that he's not only mentions contentment, but he joins what? Godliness with contentment. Here we find that it's not only a submissive posture towards the Lord's provision, which combats covetousness, but also a spiritual priority. A spiritual priority. That is, Paul takes the focus off the material and places it on the spiritual. 
For Paul, holiness and righteousness and godliness are rare jewels to be sought and treasured. Greater than money, greater than fame, greater than material things is godliness. A man finds contentment when he begins to value spiritual growth and maturity over material gain. Wouldn't you love the relief of just getting off that hamster wheel? Just getting out of that rat race? Wouldn't you just love the release of saying, you know what? I don't need to strive for that greater standard of living. I don't need to uh, focus upon possessions and money and as if that's going to bring me some satisfaction. Instead of just excusing yourselves from that whole uh, system and saying, you know what? True satisfaction and fulfillment comes through godliness. And that'll be my pursuit. A man finds contentment when he begins to value spiritual growth and maturity over material gain. Is that spiritual priority that Jesus taught when he said, what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. The Lord will provide. The problem is we're not content with needs. We lust after wants. This is an essential attitude. Contentment is an essential attitude for an elder since his labor is often rewarded with spiritual dividends and not necessarily material things. Now, it's right for a pastor to be compensated, for sure. We'll see that in a second. But it's important that a pastor, an elder, doesn't first serve for money. Seeing others come to Christ, seeing them them continue to grow, brings more satisfaction to the godly elder than material blessings or financial gain. Some of you share that same spirit and attitude. I could tell by the applause after baptism. I can tell by the fact that you came here, especially to come and witness individuals giving their lives to Jesus and making that profession of faith through baptism. Satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment through spiritual blessings more than material gain. The godly elder is not caught up in hoarding earthly riches or coveting human accolades, but instead is driven to faithfulness because his eyes are fixed on that day when Peter says, the chief shepherd will appear and he will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, a word of balance here. Whereas elders are forbidden from exercising oversight for quote-unquote shameful gain, or being lovers of money, that doesn't mean pastors should not be compensated. The warnings focus upon a man's heart motivation. Is he in, money? Is he in ministry to make money? Uh, does he see the church as an avenue by which he can become rich? Does he have an unhealthy love for money and possessions? Those are the questions. If so, then he's disqualified from eldership. And as a congregation, if you're here from another congregation, don't allow a man like that to get anywhere near the pulpit. On the other hand, if an elder faithfully fulfills his calling uh, to exercise oversight over Christ's flock, laboring in the word, and teaching and preaching, and feeding the sheep, then he's a man that's worthy of compensation. And the church then, the congregation then, should show their view of money uh, by really supporting a man who gives himself faithfully to ministry uh, with the intention of feeding the congregation. Paul maintained that same balance in his letter to Timothy. Prior to the passage we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul is talking about uh, shameful gain and so on, He said this in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Elders should not serve for material gain, but he should also be able to plow in hope. He should be able to serve, understanding that, yes, the Lord is going to bless with material provision, uh, I'm sorry, with spiritual fruit, but he's also going to provide material provision as well. The man who's given his life for ministry should be uh, also able to get his living from ministry. Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 9, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The key is this, the faithful shepherd is not a hireling. It's not just a job. It's not just a profession. It's not just a, a means to get rich. When a church finds a faithful elder, however, he should be able to, the church should be able to provide for him in a way that he can focus on ministry without distraction from material stresses. Well, back to 1 Timothy 6. And I said to you that we may end up cutting this off halfway, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. Okay. Uh, So if you want to learn all about alcohol, come back next week. (laughs) I think we just cut our attendance in half. (laughs) Back to 1 Timothy 6. Along with a submissive posture towards the Lord's provision in contentment and a spiritual priority when considering our values, Paul, Paul also indicates that maintaining an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective will help us remain content while fighting against covetousness. He says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's an eternal perspective. As Christians, we live in the shadow of eternity. We are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And because of that, we hold loosely to this life. The focus of our attention and effort should be fixed upon whatever brings eternal rewards. Paul would encourage the rich to be rich in good works, to be generous and needy, uh, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life by generously using their money and material goods to aid in the advancement of the kingdom. What do we do? We see our temporal blessings produce eternal fruit. This is the same principle that Jesus taught when he said in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Some of us are just you know, spending our time decorating our cabin on the Titanic, buying new things and uh, filling up uh, our homes and uh, uh, putting all of our resources into the earthly and the temporal, not realizing it's all going to be burned up. Uh, What in the world are we going to have at the time when Jesus Christ appears and we stand before him? We want to use what we have materially to bring eternal reward. And we can do that, the Bible says, very clearly when it comes to our resources and our money. Well, How important is it that elders have a proper attitude towards money and possessions? And remember, this applies to all believers. After encouraging Timothy and those he would later train for eldership to maintain a submissive posture towards God's provision and a spiritual priority regarding what they value and an eternal perspective when considering material things, he then goes on to describe the consequences if those attitudes are not maintained. 
So look in verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. At the roots of many personal and social ills is an unhealthy love for money. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't have to be a Christian to affirm that. Uh, You know it just by looking at the culture, just by looking at the news. Uh, You understand all the societal ills that come about by people who are greedy. It's the love of money which led the Pharisees to victimize the poor. It's the love of money that led Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. It's the love of money that caused the rich young ruler to miss out on salvation. It's the love of money that caused Judas to betray the Lord. It's the love of money which drives people to steal and cheat and swindle. How many men and women have compromised basic principles of morality to make a quick buck? How many have freely victimized others for money? How many have traded their self-respect for cash? Worst of all, how many out of a love for money have renounced the faith that they once confessed? Money produces apostates. Leads such men into all sorts of trouble. These are the men, these are the, the men and women who leave the ranks of Jesus followers and join with Judas. Their tragic stories stand as dire warnings to any who might serve as an elder or any who would claim to follow Jesus. Well, after profiling the money-loving hypocrites who bring their own destruction through covetousness, Paul then turns to give some positives. And that's what we're going to do as we close. He turns to encourage Timothy with some positive values. Not only should Timothy and we flee from greed, but there's also some things we must pursue. And so look in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says, But as for you, in contrast to the greedy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And can we just stop for a moment again and for me to say, if you're here and you don't generally attend church, you're not a Christian, this is what the Word of God says. And so if you see others out there who claim to be Christians teaching for money, and you see the extravagant lifestyles and all these types of things, and you're saying, that doesn't seem right, the Bible agrees with you. The standard for spiritual leadership is a freedom from a love for money. And so Paul says to Timothy, you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Ever before the faithful elder are the spiritual priorities of righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This is a man who loves what is holy, who loves his fellow believers, 
Further, he's faithful and he's consistent, leaving no fear among his congregants that he might suddenly swerve from orthodoxy and into the world. Lastly, since he sees people as precious souls with whose watch care he's been entrusted, he maintains a Christ-like gentleness as he ministers to them. The pursuit of these things provides a natural protection against the various pains and pitfalls which come from a love for money or greed or material gain. And so, in conclusion, what is your relationship to money and possessions? Have you fallen prey again to the rat race mentality, causing you to always covet the bigger and the better? Do you put too much emphasis on the size of your house, the newness of your car, the balance in your bank account? Do you see money and stuff as a measure of success? And we're not, going to, we're not going to assume that because we're Christians, we're free from such wrong thinking, especially as those who are part of the affluent West. Or are you content? If you're here this morning and you are a man who aspires for the office of elder, do you view ministry as an opportunity to serve or to be served? Do you see it as an opportunity to gain or to give? Do you see it as a job Or do you see it as a calling? All of us together, as we return to Hebrews chapter 13, all of us together should heed the writing of the writer of Hebrews when he said, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. You've also promised that you would provide for our needs. We pray that you'd help those of us this morning who are here as Christians, help us to do that personal assessment, to see where we have confused needs and wants. Help us to sort that out so that we can be content and lean upon you for provision. Help us also uh, to have then a submissive posture towards you and your provision, which leads to contentment. I pray you'd help us to also have a spiritual priority. Prioritizing spiritual gain, spiritual fruits over monetary advancement. Correct us, discipline us, convict us where we've gotten this wrong, where our focus has been too much on this world and on the temporal possessions. And help us to use instead the resources we have to further the kingdom, to set our minds on things above, to lay up our treasures in heaven. And help us also then to have that eternal perspective, understanding that this life is temporary. We are not those who live to get as much as we can out of this temporary life. Instead, we view everything that we have here as a means to bring you glory and to bring about spiritual fruit. So help us to do as much as we can with what you've given us for your glory as we await your return. And help us to be content. And then, Lord, we pray for any this morning who are not yet Christians. We pray that they could feel the love of Christ uh, through us. We pray that they could feel welcomed. We also pray that they could see their need for Jesus, that they would understand their position as sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, I pray that they would understand that full forgiveness and acceptance and adoption into your family is available to them as they repent and turn from living a life for themselves 
and instead submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, embracing Him as personal Savior. Um, press that upon their hearts. And uh, Lord, we just pray that You'd use this Word. Help us if we are give, have given ourselves over to covetousness, covetousness and greed. And lastly, help us as a church as we look to the future and think about appointing other men for eldership. Help us to submit to the biblical qualifications, to not uh, be novel, not be inventive, but instead just to look for those who meet the qualifications that you have very clearly laid out for us. And so we pray that you protect us that way, protect us from ourselves, protect us from our own sinfulness and our own weakness, and help us to submit to, to your design. Lord, we thank you for this, and we thank you most of all for Jesus, who saves and changes lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.